Hello, everybody. Hello. Welcome back to Wandering Into Wellness. Finn and Lydia, as per usual, and our special guest today, Ed Stafford, who needs no introduction, but nonetheless. <laughs> uh, Ed is an adventurer, a wilderness man, a guy who's done some really amazing things in his time, treks that I think would put most people so far off their map of the comfort zone that they wouldn't be able to find their way back. Uh, and actually, the reason that we particularly wanted to get you on this time, Ed, was because I think I heard about your uh, alone on a desert island situation and the struggle with isolation. Mm -hmm. And I think right at this minute in time, there's probably never been, I'm sure there's never been a moment where humans are all connected by this shared vulnerability, which is this sense of like dread isolation and this lack of ability to connect at a physical level with people. Um, like much as all we can do all the Zooms in the world, we're still so far from people. It's, it's a really troubling time for that point. Um, and so I think, yeah, you're, you're in this place where you've, you've been there, you've actually been through the, the real trenches of isolation. And I suppose what I'd love to ask you first is like, how, how are you getting on now? Are, those, are the things that you've learned from what you've done, have, are you finding supports from the things that you've done, like those types of isolation endeavors? Yeah. Um Hi. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I do. I, I haven't said hello yet. Hello. Ah, Finn. Sorry. <laughs> hello um, yeah, I do. I mean, I think it's very difficult to learn lessons when you're doing things like that and then not carry them into everyday life. It would be ridiculous, wouldn't it? I mean, um, I think that particular episode um, of 60 Days on an Island, I, I, um, I struggled the whole way through. I think that's why it made actually, it's the TV programme that I'm the most proud of. It was the most authentic and, it, and it, I don't think anyone really knew whether it was possible to dump someone on an island. And, and remember, I didn't have any food or water or clothes or a knife or a mosquito net or anything. And it was, um, it was bonkers actually. And, and nobody knew if I'd do it. And obviously there was a satellite phone. So if things got terrible, which it was wrapped up in cellophane that I wasn't allowed to open, but I could call for help. So it was safe. But um, I, remember, I remember thinking initially, it's going to take a couple of weeks and I'll get lonely. Um, and the moment that, that they dropped me off and the boat like um, sped off um, past the reef, um, I just, I felt like I was going to be sick on the beach. I just felt this, I just utterly, utterly overwhelmed. And, and um, I didn't really, I couldn't really quite work out why my brain wasn't functioning. I was just, um, I was just, but I, I think reflectively looking back on it, I was just, we're very, very uh, accustomed to leaning on other people for all sorts of different reasons for, for, uh, you know, our whole sense of self. Um, you know, you tell a joke, you walk into a room, you tell a joke, people laugh. Um, Therefore, you know, you're funny because you've just told a funny joke. But suddenly, if there's no one there, you get no feedback at all. And, and I think um, the concept that I was, for the first time ever, utterly responsible for, for my food, for my warmth at night, for absolutely everything was just just literally um, just sent me into panic mode. And, and I stayed in that panic mode for quite a few days, actually. It took a while to, to find my feet and, and really um, gather my gather my thoughts and, you know, if I think weirdly being naked also uh, made me extraordinarily more vulnerable. It was a bit of a marketing stunt for TV, obviously uh, to prove that you'd got nothing up your sleeve, um, et cetera. But if I'd gone on with a pair of boots and a pair of trousers and a jacket, I could have run around the island, you know, quite proactively sorting stuff out. But I just felt like a prat, you know, I, I felt like I felt, I'm, I'm not one of these rugby, I do play rugby, but I'm not one of these rugby players who goes into bars and takes all their clothes off. I, I think, yeah. 
nothing could be more horrific as far as I'm concerned. And so I just felt utterly, utterly vulnerable, um, utterly um, pathetic, actually. And it took a real, real while to, 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 to find my feet with the whole thing. I, I mean, I could go on and on, but um, yeah, initially it, it, it was very difficult. Um, and when you say pathetic, because I mean, another thing we want to talk to you about is like your skills from a wilderness point of view as well. Imagine, I mean, I can imagine myself or Lydia or another person going to that with like actually no tools to deal with. I mean, you say you'd no knife, but you had loads of skills. Whereas well, most of us kind of don't have that. Did that not make you feel like, okay, I've got something that I can do here? I mean, what did you make your first clothes out of actually? <laughs> or did you make clothes? Well, okay. I think the first thing to understand is this was the first survival experiment I'd ever done. So I'd walked the length of the Amazon, but I walked the length of the Amazon with a rucksack with a lighter in it and a, and a hammock in it and a sleeping bag in it and packed with food. And, you know, I, and there had been times when we'd run out of food and we had to, um, you know, fish for piranhas and stuff like that. So I kind of was breaking the sort of uh, the edge of it in terms of a, a little bit of understanding, but I was no expert. I mean, before I went on the island, it got commissioned. And then I went, oh, I should like, I should learn how to light a fire with two sticks, really, shouldn't I now? <laughs> that would be a good thing to know. Um, and, um, and therefore, you yeah, know, I was definitely not an expert. And I, again, I think that was why it was a successful programme, because it was far more like a layman. What would you do in a survival situation if you got washed up on a beach? Um, I do, however, think that um, it's... Um, sorry, my... Uh, Lisa, just come in, Fliss, can you leave me? I'm doing a podcast, sorry. Oh, <laughs> good. Hello, Jesus. Um, 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 I've lost my train of thought now, but essentially, yeah, I, I was definitely not an expert and, and, and I did have some of the skills, but I'd learned them quite recently. So they weren't ingrained skills that I could just, you know, if Ray Mears had been dropped off on that island, it probably wouldn't have been as entertaining because he could literally just sort himself out and okay. but I don't think that is realistic most people don't have, have all those survival skills anymore um yeah. but it isn't I don't actually think it's the hard survival skills the fire lighting and stuff like that 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 make you thrive in those situations I think it's far more the the the, the mental side the psychological side um um in terms of being composed in terms of um gathering yourself in terms of you know and that that was the stuff that I didn't actually know anything about I'd spent walking the Amazon having sort of wars in my brain you know not really understanding why I was so frustrated why I was had such a short temper stuff like that and I think it was actually the the, the island was a catalyst for me for massively for self-awareness being um there were just little glimpses of of peace and serenity like when I was uh, plaiting palm leaves in order to to make a, um, a house I just suddenly feel sort of overwhelmed by a sense of peace and I was doing something positive I was constructive I, I was doing something that was moving me forward but also I was allowing the sort of flow of life to to go as well but they were they were fleeting moments and it wasn't really till afterwards and I, I I've been open about this in my book I had a bit of a breakdown about a year after coming off that island and um, the first psychiatrist who, who who looked at me said look Ed, this, this isn't surprising you know if if you want to turn a man's brain into mush you isolate him for extended periods of time about 60 days you know admittedly probably in a darkened room and admittedly they would probably probably not be agreeing to it but you know you have you have been under certain circumstances which which is extremely taxing for the human brain to deal with and and um and yeah i, I think looking back on it it's not really a sob story although it was horrifically um difficult both to hold it together and film a whole survival program for discovery channel and feed myself and all of that it was, it was the most intense experience ever but 
as you say, you learn you learn huge amounts from those sort of things. And and I think coming out of it, I now feel so much more of a sort of emotional balance in life because I do, for example, one of the tools that I was um, I was sort of suggested to use um, rather than go on any sort of medication when I had that breakdown was was to meditate. And, and it was actually just the basic um, app Headspace, um, which at the time was quite new. And it was, you know, it was quite nice to be able to um, do something like meditation, which for a, 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 a fairly stereotypical man like me didn't have sitting down joysticks saying om or anything like that. It was just all quite practical stuff. And to be able to step back from my thoughts and my emotions and actually have a bit of perspective and and um, and calm all of this down was just so refreshing. And and I think that if, if it were to take a, a specific thing that I carried with me the most it is meditation i do a daily meditation practicing and it is only a 20 minute um headspace app but i just find that resets me massively and um for example on the island it was 13 days before i got a fire going because i couldn't find the right wood to get a fire going so i was huddled in this cave for 13 days um freezing cold um no you hadn't got any clothes on so like the wind's coming in at night and and i i just i for, for a few days i, I just decided well i need to grab there wasn't much grass on the island but i thought horses sleep in stables with just straw don't they so i just i'll grab as much dry grass as possible and just try and keep it over me but it was it was miserable and then and then and eventually once i did just i think coincidentally have a sort of day of composure i just looked up from the cave and saw the tree that was um the fire lighting and i'd walked past it 300 times um <laughs> in the in the time i've been on the island but i've been in such a spin that wow. I didn't see it, you know, and it literally couldn't see the wood for the trees. And so, yeah, got a fire going. And, and I think that was a that was a big boost in confidence because I think we all do need little, we all do need little um, positive th things to feedback, to, to reassure us that we're, that we're not um, useless, I suppose, and that we have yeah. a degree of competency. Um, so yeah, med meditation it was, was it's probably the biggest one I, I carry forward. And I think, you know, <clears throat> something like a pandemic it's so easy to think that everything is out of your control and 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 to to a degree it, it is out of your control and yet obviously the way you react to it is within your control isn't it so you know yeah. being able to just surrender to what is and then take positive action um subsequently i think i think that's really important as well it is i mm. think um what's really interesting is that you did these things like these big kind of survival things or expeditions and and like you were saying, you were kind of a, a fairly typical bloke going into them. And a lot of people who were viewing those things would think of them as kind of blokey, masculine things to do. And yet the thing that was the takeaway from it wasn't like, I am man, I can survive. It was like, oh, I think I know myself like a little bit mm. better. And these are the tools that I have. And I think from so many of the people that we've spoken to who've been through extraordinary experiences, they felt like coming out of it it was like the dissemination of the idea of who they thought they were or what it was that they were that led them to this point of well what am I and what's important in my life and I think yeah. that that's really relevant now because so many guys and women but especially guys from what I'm hearing have lost their jobs now they were the provider in their family their sense of purpose was from that they were going out to work all day long and they had these things that they're doing maybe sport or different things that they're doing outside of that and now suddenly they're at home and they're sitting at home all day long mm -hmm. and maybe their partner's working and they're not working and it's that sense of isolation that's the problem because they're going well what what who am i yeah what are, what are the important things in my life i mean totally. identity. when i did 
and I don't know whether everyone's got this because I mean I was adopted and so um, I had a few issues going on to the island that I wasn't aware of um, um, but I, one of the one of the things that subsequently came out in the therapy was um, I had a I had been living my life based on a what was it, is termed I think it's called a reflected sense of se- reflective sense of self um, so like, like if you um, walk into a room and you tell a joke and people laugh then then you know you're funny or if you walk the Amazon and everyone tells you you're super tough then you know you're super tough you know and it, literally that was probably why I did it it's, it's comical isn't it to give up two and a half years of your life just to prove to everyone that you're tough but you know it, the brain works in a funny way doesn't it and 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 I think you know to suddenly then go on an island and and a bit like people losing their jobs, I suppose, there was no one around me. So there was no one to tell me that I was going to be okay. There was no one to tell me that, you know, I was being an idiot. There was no one to tell me, you know, to buck my ideas up or even share a joke with or anything. And I just, I had to literally, and it it took a long time to to work through this, but I had to do, I just went, well, I need to decide who I am then, don't I? I need to decide what my morals are, you know? Do I want to be the sort of person who is, um, you know, flaky and doesn't turn up for stuff if they say they do, or do I want to be dependable and reliable? Or do I, do I want to be honest? Do I want to cheat on people, or do I want to, you know, all my relationships to be deep and honest? And and I and I had to sort of make it up. And I thought this is this is nuts. I'm making all of these things up. And I was like, yeah, but you're you, aren't you? Yeah, no, I'm yeah. me. <laughs> so it is up to me to decide what I'm like. And it sounds ridiculous, but I'd never. And I don't know whether many people do. I mean, I quite stereotypically male I think and, and and a little bit because of um because of the cultures that I grew up in uh, rugby and and the military and stuff I, I I drank a lot you know to get to get through periods where you just don't really feel good you you have a beer and 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 the world is is right again and and yet again without any of those distractions without Facebook or beer or cigarettes or chocolate or whatever your 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 tipple is you're suddenly left with this incredibly brutally honest version of yourself because there's nowhere to hide at all and I think that again is what people who maybe have latched on to an identity as a provider and I, I, I'm in exactly the same boat in that respect I mean we're lucky in ma- many ways we, we live in a lovely house and stuff like that but I haven't done any tv work since the year before last now so it's it's getting a bit twitchy you know, okay. and, 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 you know when you've got two twin girls who are now five just about five months like we 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 need to you know we need to start thinking about how we're going to do. We're going to are we going to Airbnb um, the there's a couple of rooms in the house out that type of thing because um, because we need we need an income. So I do understand it in terms of um, in terms of the the sort of psychology in terms of the survival situation, but also in terms of the current situation, it's a very difficult thing to to divorce yourself from. If I'm not the provider, then I'm then I'm useless. But I think I think having the ability to step back from it and seeing those sort of um seeing those identities that we put on ourselves i think it makes it a little bit easier to then to then go look i i trust myself that i'm doing my best that every situation that i'm presented with i make an honest and 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 decent decision and i do the best i can and like who can do any more than that you know who can if, as long as you're being honest with the people you're talking to and at every point when you're having to make a decision you're making the best one that you possibly can then you've got that I think then you then you start to build up and then things go right for you and then you start to build up confidence but it's in a much more it's in a much more self-aware positive manner isn't it because you're building your confidence up which is genuine rather than relying on how many people have liked your last Instagram post or something flaky like that um yeah. 
but it's it's a hard thing to go through. And I, I'm not really, I, I suppose I am a navel gazer in some respects, but I feel, I do think that, you know, that's a that's a bit of an unfair term, isn't it? It's a bit of an old school term, really. But I think we all have to do work on ourselves in order to be the best version of ourselves, in order to then be a decent part of a family and a, yeah. and a friend group and all of that stuff. Yeah. And so with your kids now, and I'd imagine you'd probably be reflecting on this from your own upbringing, schooling, how culture was around you when you were growing up. Did you feel that you got the sort of resources or were given any sort of resource to become an authentic human as you were growing up? And if if not, what would you, what like, what are you going to put into your kids' childhood to make sure that they can design their own, like rather than building, you know, castles on the sand, essentially, which is what, unfortunately, I feel like a lot of us do. Um, no, I didn't. I think um, things were, you know, uh, adoption is a funny thing, uh, again, but I think it just exaggerates things that a lot of people have going on in their, in their lives anyway, actually. So although I had an exaggerated version of it, I think, you know, that basically the, the theory is that a, a, if a child is separated from its mother at birth, it's, you know, a, a child can't, can't fend for itself, can't feed itself or anything. So it, it's a trauma that is the equivalent of death, you know, it's, it's, it's that big for the baby. It sounds melodramatic, but of course it is because it's the only thing it can do to stay alive. And so you're then, one of the ways, of the, the, the theory is that one of the ways that um, children adapt is to, is to just basically put their own, um, self on hold and and please other people so you end up being a people pleaser so you're trying trying to make all of the people around you like you because because you're in this sort of um weird state of being abandoned and so and, and i think then weirdly because i would be prepared to do anything for other people i put my own sort of wants and desires on hold um that that that, that led to a very shaky sense of self you know very very shaky sense of who who, who i was and i then went to boarding school which some might say was really lucky. I would never send my child to boarding school. I think it was, uh, you know, that that lack of parental guidance, um, you know, and we we would do whatever we 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 wanted to do at boarding school. It was a little bit Lord of the Flies. It was quite old school. I'm sure they've improved nowadays. I, I don't want to knock the current schooling system because I don't know enough about it. My kids are the oldest one's three, so we haven't got into that yet. But um, but I think. Um, I don't think it was a healthy environment. I don't think anyone encouraged us to talk about our feelings. I think it was, um, there, were, there were no morals. There, there, and I, I, it, what I would do to to rectify that, for example, with my little boy, which I already do, is like, we're, we're talking all the time, you know, and, 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 and communication can be over-egged, I think, in terms of, oh, just communication is the answer to everything. I don't think it is, but but I think having that loving relationship, giving him enough time so that you really do understand him, so that you're not, you're not creating this chasm um you know uh, and I, I never had the ability really to chat to my dad he wasn't you know he was quite old school quite victorian in many ways and um my mum was more approachable but but i don't think parents back then had the kind of awareness about psychology i remember my my sister had tantrums for example and and back then that was deemed to be naughty and you know she was shouted at for having tantrums and then every night for fucking six years there were there were doors being slammed and people screaming at each other and you know that I don't think that happens as much in in in, in um, families today because you know if, if if a child starts behaving in a way that is causing concern for the parents they 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 step back and go what what are we doing wrong you know what what are we doing that is not enabling this child to 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 thrive in the way they could and and <clears throat> and, and so I just think 
I don't think it's rocket science. I just do think it's a it's a degree of care that we're aware enough now to be able to give, I suppose. Um, yeah, we're all busy and we've all got lives that are ridiculously hectic and we should give more time to our children. But I think, you know, that that that, that connection is is everything, isn't it? You know, once you lose that, when, once your child is just making things up as they go along um, and not having that guidance. And I do think, <clears throat> you know, I'm not a disciplinarian, but I just think it, it's 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 being there enough so that you can just make gentle tweaks to the direction of a child's life rather than having to, you know, come down like a sledgehammer all of the time. And I think for me that, I mean, that's my version of, of, of how I'm going to sort of not make the same mistakes that, um, that I think um, happened when, when I was, when I was growing up, but you know, I'm, I'm not blaming my parents at all. I think it's, it is a generational thing. And I think we are all in a much better position to be able to be better parents today, I think. Yeah. So interesting you say Victorian. Isn't it weird how it feels like the 19, well, the 1960s, 70s, 80s, that version of parenting was actually 100 years old at that stage. In yeah. a weird way, the authoritarian idea around parenting, it sort of lasted way beyond its, I mean, like it's born out of the industrial revolution, basically, isn't it? That's sort of like all that kind of like concentrated commerciality and like dominance and control and assertion of you know of your of your will it's such an odd thing that like it persisted and, and suddenly this the disintegration of it or the vacuum it's kind of left has left us without those kind of natural authentic leaders and and I think the role particularly for guys at the moment to understand who they are and what they're supposed to attach to is particularly off-putting because I think women there's an understand. I mean, there's a there's a developing understanding. I think that that women's natural role nurturing as nurturing humans, and as like bearers of fruit, bearers of kids, like that's like that that part of society that role doesn't go away. But man, men's role is kind of like we we can only see at the moment reflected in what's going on around us the kind of negative outcomes of that. It's a really interesting thing to see you stepping away from what you're saying is like that kind of original rugby culture kind of like hard man thing. And, and now kind of redefining yourself. Yeah. Um, I think I don't know if I'm overegging that, but yeah. No, I, don't, I think you're absolutely right. I think I think there are there is a wave of men, certainly of my generation, who are, who are, who definitely get it now. And 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 you know, the people who are I am friends with, then they're, they're not the super hard. You know, um, I, do, I I find hard, tough guys quite comical now. I mean, because because clearly it's a front, isn't it? You know, no, no, nobody doesn't have fears. Nobody doesn't have, um, you know, worries in life, you know, and if you're putting just one strong version of yourself forward to, to the world, then, then you're only getting a certain portion of that person. And, and, and therefore I think, you know, that the real strength in a man, and I've got a lovely um, Aboriginal friend called Jeremy Donovan, and who's um, oh, just, just a phenomenal human being, helped me a lot um, along, along my own journey and, practically doing survival stuff but also sort of from a spiritual perspective and and he would say a man's strength is in his tears and I think you know that real strength is being able to show your emotions and not be embarrassed about it and be able to show your vulnerabilities and and just stand there as a human being and 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 and, and not shy away from those and I think yeah now, now we, I'm not going to name names but you know you've got your tv programs with your very stereotypical men now and and I think they look a bit comical. I really do. Mm, it looks silly. I, it was wooden. I have to say, like, also, though, it's not, you know, yes, this is like a stereotypical male thing. But I think as a parent, certainly 
or you know even as a business owner um and you can talk to this i don't i don't know but i think that you feel this too like as a woman i notice that the moments that i don't feel in control when i'm parenting where i feel like like I have a kid, he's brilliant, um, but he likes to push every boundary and he he needs to know where his safe edge is. And until he finds that safe edge, he's going to push and he's going to push and he's going to push. And that's great when I'm in my center, but when I'm really tired and he's woken me, you know, seven times last night and those kind of days when you're really tired and you've got a million other things, you're working from home and you've got your phone and all the different things you're trying to do and they're pushing, they're pushing the background. Whenever you feel out of control, your natural instinct is to go into showy authoritarianship is to go like now listen here i'm the boss you know and you hear this thing coming out of yourself that isn't the way that you parent in any other situation it's not your belief system it's just the words that you heard when you were a child coming out at you because you're like i don't know what i'm doing i don't know what i'm doing oh better go back to that like reflexive thing that was built into us and that's not just male i mean the male element of it is coming out in the woman as well but it's it's just that feeling of security and safety and sense of self right and those bosses you know in their work environments that are feeling like they're losing control of their employees things aren't going well they get authoritarian and they shout and they're like you are doing this wrong and whatever and you know we need to try and you know those are the moments right where we go oh okay no that wasn't great like in our house we have this do over thing where i go uh, if i hear myself doing that i'll take a moment to go to my son our oh, rubes that like that wasn't great let's do that again mm -hmm. and then we'll just literally replay it the way that we and we'll keep replaying it until it goes the way that like sometimes do you ever play each other do you ever like Rube, you oh, do totally. me and i'll do you. yeah totally. and then that's really annoying because it does this really annoying voice and i'm like that is not my voice and then i hear my voice and then it's doubly doubly bad but it's just that it's that moment of noticing like what happens to me when i'm not in control and where are my belief system around it like do i believe that as a parent or just you know, a person in the pandemic, do I believe that in order to be a good, valid, useful member of society, I have to be in control all of the time? Mm -hmm. And if I do believe that, where does that leave me now? Because most of us, like you're saying, are in this place of going, oh, I, I actually have that illusion of control that I thought I had for all that time. It's been stripped away from me. Mm -hmm. And how do I function within a space where I've been looking for these external references to give me that feeling of control. And again, like you said, it's coming back to that inner metric of going, well, what's my inner compass? And how do I feel about every choice that I'm making and every change that I'm making? And, and how, how can I be my own guide rather than looking to these external sources? I, I, I'm, yeah, I agree. I think you're being a bit hard on yourself actually, because I think you know, those times, those stressful times, is when you go into this sort of survival mode, isn't it? And like, let's face it, if someone's falling off a cliff, you're not going to be all touchy feely. You, you're going to you're going to shout. You're going to go, stop, stand back. You know, you you know, you're in an emergency scenario. I mean, consider when, your choices. <laughs> and when you're stressed like that, you go into that mode. I know you. And I think you know to then have the ability to step back and go, should we do that again? Because because I didn't, you know, then that's great because you've got self-awareness, you're, 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 you're aware of the situation, but I wouldn't beat yourself up about it. I mean, that is just natural, isn't it? That's because that is your version of, you know, a little emergency happening in your life because you, partly because your own tolerance level has gone down because you didn't sleep the night before or whatever. So that it's easier for anything to become that little emergency, but also because, because our lives are different. We don't have life and death things going on at the moment and that it's the it's the stressful things isn't it it's the money worries and stuff like that that are, that are the things that create those sort of situations but i think you know what you're doing seems to be perfect you know do it 
because it's going to happen anyway. It's like thinking, oh, I'm not going to think bad thoughts. It's like, they're going to come up. You've just got to be aware of them and then go, mm, okay. Um, and then, uh, and then, yeah, understand. And then just smiling and going, look, I apologize to my little boy all the time. Yeah. He, and sometimes I, I can shout and I really let rip at him as well. And I'm like, mate, I am so sorry. You did not deserve that. Um, and he, and, I think kids are very resilient and I think they just massively, we, as we all know, and I'm sure I'm preaching the converted, they just massively appreciate it when you're honest and you just give them a big hug and you say sorry and like, right, let's do that again. Daddy got it wrong this time. But um, yeah, yeah, it sounds like you're doing amazingly. Yeah. Yeah. It's that expectation of self-awareness. Like you're talking about self-awareness, that expectation that you have that some people would have, like when somebody says they're self-aware that they're never going to fall or trip. But yeah. it's not that thing. It's 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 how quickly you can bring it back. How quickly you recognise it, and then kind of go, oh, I, hang on, whoops, catch myself here. Yeah, um, yeah. I mean, we've all got hang-ups, and we've all got, you know, we have all had lived with a certain set of events that have happened in our lives, and 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 we all have triggers as well. And let's face it, most of us haven't got the time to do so much therapy that you're going to get out all of that past conditioning, I suppose. So things are going to happen. But if you are relatively together, you're gonna you're just gonna spot them and smile and go, look, okay, yeah, no, I lost I lost a bit of control there. So I don't know. Smile over the edge. I mean, I have, I have done a fair bit of therapy in the past, but again, as a dad and a husband and stuff, you just don't have time to do the same amount of work on yourself to continue. I'd love, yeah. love to continue doing psychotherapy, not because it's um, not not just to sort of revel in the whole thing but i think it's great to continue taking steps to becoming you know a better version of yourself but but you know who's got the time to to do consistently keep doing lots and lots and lots of work on yourself and you do, you do little bits and bobs don't you but but um but yeah just being kind to yourself i suppose yeah. just recognizing that that's normal tell us about lack of time tell us about two five-month-old twins how's <laughs> that <laughs> um do you know what they're they're great um I, I couldn't i couldn't really complain um laura was saying last night we, we go to bed we've got we built a um we bought a double double bed out of pallets at the beginning of lockdown so we've got two um two king size mattresses pushed together basically and 43 euro pallets and um so me ran molly millie and my wife laura all sleep in the same bed which is ace i think um um, although somehow we all get squished into one time. I was going to ask, like, yeah, do you always end up in the same places? Yeah, but I mean, she she was she basically because she's double breastfeeding at the moment, and um, and uh, she, whenever we go to bed about eleven o'clock, the twins latch on, and and then they're they're asleep within ten minutes, and she's like, "How lucky are we? <laughs> this is just bonkers." And then I sleep till two o'clock or whenever the next feed is. And then I, I have to admit, I put earplugs in, so I don't even hear that feed, but there's not that much you can do as a man when, when your wife is adamant about breastfeeding and quite rightly, cause she's, she's, she's doing really well. Um, but um, yeah, no, we're really lucky as far as that's concerned. I, I think the, the time thing just ends up being, I think it's tricky, isn't it? When, especially again, when everyone's at home and they haven't got a structure to life, um, and yet you're, you are, you have got financial worries. That's probably the main worry that people have got at the moment. Obviously there is the COVID worry, but you know, if you're below 60 and don't have pre-existing conditions, it's not a huge worry um, for healthy people. I don't think, and I think it's uh, maybe a little bit of scaremongering going on all over the place, but you know, that's just my opinion. Um, I, I think, you know, financial, financial worries do end up being probably the thing that most people are, are, are stressing about. And um 
and then it's if you're worrying you're not always the most um you're not always the most efficient are you at doing whatever you're doing because you're kind of half worrying and half thinking about that and then you try and do two jobs at once and then you're looking after the kids and stuff like that so i do think you know i mean wife my wife and i said we we haven't actually done it for a little while but during the first lockdown we basically gave each other three hours of the day where we we could just do our own thing so i would exercise and do a bit of work in the garden and 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 do my emails and stuff in those three hours knowing that laura had got got um got the family basically and then we'd swap over so that she'd get a bit of time to herself and do her thing and i think that's quite valuable because um because otherwise you're just kind of half doing so many different things that is that that i find that quite stressful yeah the days that we haven't and and actually we should probably go back to it actually because because uh, because the days where you're trying to trying to work and look after a child at the same time it's like as as i'm sure most listeners who've got children realize it's impossible isn't it yeah everything ends up being second best basically yeah, yeah. so so tell us about the garden then you're like i know you're doing some wilderness skills training with folk like have you got a wild garden out there what's your what's the story um well i've been reading um a book called the forest garden and and yeah I, w- I would love to turn our garden into a forest garden it was quite a manicured um sort of stately sort of garden-ish we live in a, a, a in a nice grange we swapped it for a two-bedroom flat in Battersea but obviously the further outside of London you get the more you can buy and um and we're we're, we're, we're super lucky because during lockdown you know we had that sort of garden guilt that we did have a safe space to go outside and and and, and, and muck around and stuff like that but, um, you know, it's not pretty at all. We, uh, I, I don't believe in planting flowers and stuff like that. Laura's got a great vegetable garden. We had more vegetables that we could even eat um, this year. It was ace. Um, um, we've got chickens, we've got pigs. Um, um, and yeah, we're just, we're just trying to um, create a little, I, I think it'd be great when the kids, as the kids are growing up, just seeing them interacting with all these animals. And, you know, we, you know, we do cull the, cull the cockerels, you know, when we've got too many cockerels and you don't want too many cockerels. And we eat the eggs and all the all of that, and the the first pig will will go to the abattoir in a couple of weeks. Um, okay, and, we, and we'll eat that as well. And and I think I think personally, it's part of the huge scaremongering of the sort of parallels anyway to the huge scaremongering around COVID is we're so death is such a taboo subject still in our in our society, isn't it? And you go to indigenous cultures. Oh, you can go to Spain and you, you see like five people hanging off a motorbike or a moped or something like that. And there's more relaxed attitudes in, in Southern uh, Mediterranean. And then you go to South America and it's like 11 people hanging off a motorbike. <laughs> is, is that how you measure the relationship? Yeah, to well, and, and yeah, and then in indigenous cultures, you know, if, if a, if a mother wants a chicken to be killed, she'll point at a four-year-old child and say, go and kill that chicken. And it will go and, grab the machete and, and kill the chicken and it's part of the cycle of life and that's why I think that sometimes we get things out of perspective in terms of the deaths that are happening now around COVID people have to die and it's not incredibly sad and, and you know again going back to my geography days I remember studying the Reverend Thomas Malthus who had the theory of population which is that if the if an area gets overpopulated the planet will self-control using war, famine, or disease, um, and, um, and that's, I think that's what's happening. You know, I, th- I think I don't, I, you know, it's very. We have tr- these discussions regularly as well. It's very tricky to have these discussions without sounding like some sort of 
maniac who wants to cull the human population. And it's not that at all. I'm not a maniac that wants to cull the human population. But when a virus comes in that takes out the weak people in the population, weaker people because they're the vulnerable people, mm. you have to step back and go, look, is, is this a catastrophe or is this planet self-regulating? And, and I'm, I'm, I'm a bit on the fence there, I have to say. Yeah, yeah. I think it's really, I mean, we did a podcast on death rituals and grief and approaches to grief and death around the world, um, precisely because of this thing where we were kind of going, well, what's the story? Like, we have this kind of, we live and we, now we're all talking about wellness and, and how to live well. But then there's this just kind of bizarre thing where like death and even birth to a large degree, because birth is so close to death. In fact, in loads of ways, it's the one time in your life as a woman where you're really definitely facing a moment where you're going, well, this could go either way. And that's the reality of it, you know. Yeah. And I think what we discovered was once death and birth got taken out of the house and got put into the hospital or the mortuary or wherever it is now, it became this taboo thing because we weren't seeing it. We just weren't being exposed to it on a daily basis. And like I had a home birth, you know, I, lo I know lots of people who've had home births. And I think the people that you talk to whose kids have grown up seeing their brothers and sisters born at home and their sisters give birth at home, birth doesn't become this terrifying entity where people are screaming in wards and hospitals and no one really knows what's happening and there's blood and everything's terrifying. It's like, oh, it this is the way it can be. And it can go this way or it can go this way. And, and it's just one of the bits of the cycle of life and the same way with death. And I think now what we never see someone die. I mean, who can you think of that you've seen die? You just, it doesn't happen. When I grew up in Nepal, it was a way of life. I mean, I saw people die. I've seen loads of people die when I was a kid. I saw them fall off rope bridges into the rivers. I saw them go to try and save their child while they were washing their clothes and go down the stream you know and, and then also like you said there were feast days we killed goats we blew out the intestines we made sausages and it was like life and death and the whole thing was wrapped up together in this parcel and there was also like a support structure system of the spirituality that went with that mm. that was that was giving us the structure around like this is what we do these are the rituals that we do this is how we come together this is how we process this stuff and I think now that we've lost all that when we're faced with a situation like now where all we're being told in the news is these this is how many people die but we're not being told well how many people normally die at this time of year and yeah. what do they normally die you're just hearing die yeah. and that's all we're hearing like how ill are the other people and like is this relative to any other thing? You're just suddenly shot through the heart with mm. this utter terror. Seven then, new deaths, or even 700 like, new deaths, whatever, yeah. It's terrible, <laughs> is it? I don't know, yeah. because there's no relativism. There's just like yeah. death, and that's this terrifying thing for us. Mm. And how do we bring it back? Like, it's looking to nature, right, isn't it? And it's a very long-winded point, but my point is really like, <laughs> how do we come back to this? We go outside, we go into nature, we learn those skills, we look at the animals around us, and that's how we notice this cycle's just going on and it's going on everywhere all the time, right? Yeah, no, I, I think so too. I mean, certainly, again, going back to my Aboriginal friend, he, he, he would, um, you know, because they, they have an extraordinarily strong connection to, to, um, to their ground, to, to the land, to, to nature, and, and, and they would always um, say sort of, a little prayer of gratitude if they're if they're killing a snake or whatever they're having to kill because and i remember having an argument with a vegan on twitter about this and I was like, well, look, that's a common a common trope at this stage it's not an advisable thing to do no nope. um but um but yeah but um my argument was that look we are 
we are all animals on a planet and we're omnivores and 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 i don't necessarily think that we all have to stop e eating animals because i do think that that, that there is a cycle of life and 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 yeah i i I do think it is doing things like doing more bushcraft and 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 going out into the woods and you know, I I've, I'm lucky enough in the certainly in the in the survival shows I've done for Discovery Channel to to have been able to live a very natural life, albeit in a sort of artifice of you've got ten days to survive in this country now or this country now or this country now. But it's been it's been incredible really because I mean, I think it is even though it's a complete artifice in that you know you've got a television camera and you wouldn't be doing this. This, this survival thing, if it wasn't for, you know, paying the bills and, you know, all that sort of malarkey. I was still standing there, you know, in these in these areas with a stupid grass skirt on going, right, okay, I need to find water, I need to find food. And and then if I did catch an animal, obviously you've got, you've got to kill that animal and you've got to go through that whole process too. And I think it has made me understand the sort of, the, the just, I suppose, just the reality of life. And, and I think, you know, when you do, you know, when you think of chicken and you think of a little breast of chicken in a plastic tray with a bit of cellophane on the top of it, then then you're divorced from that, aren't you? Um, there was a really, sorry, really interesting guy I was watching a, a YouTube of a vegan, actually, who was campaigning at a supermarket, outside a supermarket, showing people where their food was coming from. Right. And so people were coming out of the supermarket and somebody complained to the police that he was, you know, um, scaring the public essentially with this you know these terrible videos of these cattle being kept in cages etc and he said well i mean all i'm doing is showing them where the food and the plastic is coming from like i'm not showing them something that isn't happening and it's not a horror movie it's just the origin of their food if they're not happy with that then it's for them to question it. but but it's not me that should be make i'm just like showing them the thing like it's just on a tv screen i'm not telling them a story out of my own head like it's the supermarket that made it like essentially i'm, I'm just showing the supermarkets ads for them you know mm. and then uh, and the police are like they're really they're really stuck right because you know they're like okay here's a vegan basically showing that if people can't eat meat they shouldn't eat meat which is you know if they can't if they can't cope with the idea of the death of the thing that they shouldn't really be eating it, which is totally true. And they were confronted themselves. Look, they're like, what is he doing wrong? They're like, they just didn't. And he was so good at talking. He talked them around in absolute circles. But it was yeah. cool because I was like, cool. I think that's really the level that we should be at. It's not like, and I don't usually have a lot of agreeing moments with, you know, hardcore veganism for the planet. I don't, you know, there's a lot of science that gets very misconstrued around this stuff. But I think if we have vegans who are showing meat eaters this is where your meat's coming from. Can you eat it now? And the meat eaters go like, okay, I can, or I can't. That's the barometer really, isn't it? Because then you're showing them the life and the death and the process. And like, are you willing to still be involved in this process? Yeah. And, and that's, and that's the divorce, isn't it? It's not, it's not seeing, it's not seeing the death, not being a part of the killing and therefore being divorced from the concept of that being a human, a living animal previously. But I mean, it's the same with, it's the same with water coming out of the tap and the appreciation that you, you know you just take it for granted don't you it's the same as living with lighting and heating and stuff like that i think i think that yeah for, for me that it's the it's, you know when when you do have to do it all from scratch without even a tent or a knife or anything like that then you you appreciate all these things so much um and 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 yeah and and, and understand, understand how lucky we are but but you know to the point where we're now slightly crippled by the fact that we're so lucky that it's like being an overly privileged child or something, isn't it really? You've got too much handed to you on a plate, therefore you don't understand the real world. And I think that's, 
as a society that's probably where we are and we're also terrified of it getting taken away that's that's yeah. the main thing we're like oh we need all the toys yeah. <laughs> keep all the toys in here you know and i think that's you know the fear of of not having and then but like you think i mean i know it i was like talking to my kid made up this game yesterday and he was like mom i really want to play this game let's get with a dartboard let's um write like good things and bad things i think he was calling them consequences um he was like let's write consequences and then whatever number you hit on the dartboard corresponds to some consequence that we've written here and like you know i was like okay cool so we made all the numbers from the dartboard and we wrote them down on a piece of paper and i was like okay let's fill them in then you know and the first one he was like um i get to buy a little toy from smith's toy store I was like, okay, little is like the operative word in that sentence, but okay. And then he's like, you know, run around the garden barefoot three times or put maple syrup in someone's shampoo. I was like, nah, not that one. <laughs> um, and we were going down the thing, but his one that he was most excited about was go camping. And I was like, well, it's a, it's a kind of a bit cold, like it's snow here. You know, it's a bit cold to go camping. He was like, no, but we can just take the tent and make a fire and most the marshmallows. And you're like, but all of us remember that. All of us remember that the most exciting thing from our childhood was not the, you know, My Little Pony dream castle that we got for Christmas. It was the time that we went camping with our parents and we roasted the marshmallows over the fire. We made the fire and we told the stories and we all slept in one room. Yeah. And we have nothing. Yeah. <laughs> we just had the tent and our parents sleeping beside us. I know, it's lovely, isn't it? I, I did that with my little boy. We went to the Peak District on Christmas Eve. I think it might have been the day before Christmas Eve. And, and it was snowing on the way up there, and it was just like utterly ridiculous. And and his um, wild, we we went wild camping basically. He's, he's three years old, and um, and you know how wild camping is sort of out of sight, out of mind. It's not strictly legal, but it's tolerated. And so we we parked in this bit of the Peak District, and uh, everybody that we met ran was like, "We're going camping," and, and I've got a big rucksack on my back because obviously, if you're camping with a three-year-old, you've <laughs> <laughs> You've got to be comfortable. So we've got to have a tent and decent sleeping bags and stuff. So I've got this ridiculous rucksack on my back carrying everything. He's going, we're going camping. And then we um we went we found a little spot that we thought was a little a little bit past about four signs that said no camping. Um and then um This isn't exactly the ninja camping moment of your dreams, is it? <laughs> yeah, and then then like, we can't put the tent up yet because it wasn't dark and we there were still people walking up and down the trail so we had to wait till the last light and we cooked um, bananas and custard and then he actually fell asleep at about 6 30 and i was like this is amazing he's absolutely sparkled in the tent and then he woke up at 11 was awake till about four oh um, but we were having such a good time at one point he was in my sleeping bag and i, I don't know and it was it was an ordeal and yet we'll both look back on it it was such fond memories that you know it was just that day we were gibbering in the tent all night long trying to stay warm together and trying to think of things to do and then getting the little stove going in the middle of the tent and i just i just genuinely i just it's a bit of a self-congratulatory pat on the back but i, I loved doing that as a dad i thought it was so important and yeah in, in terms of going back to your point that I also used to be a, an expedition leader for um, gap year kids going on expeditions and you'd, you'd see them come into the jungle again with all their hair dryers and shampoo mm -hmm. and conditioner and all of this at the beginning of a three month um, gap year sort of package into the jungle and and then you know by the end of it they're all just feral but having such an amazing time and they've not got any of the trappings of the, mm. of the world and they're, they're literally just in completely stained um, horrible clothing and and just have and and all of them have had the time of their life and they've not had phones and they've not had any of the uh tv or anything like that and they've all had the, and 
almost without exception, they've all had the best three lives that they've ever, the best three moments that they've ever had um, with nothing, you know, and living next to nature in the jungle, sleeping in hammocks, washing in rivers. Um, so yeah, we, I've, I've, well, I'm a big advocate of that, as you, as you well know. I mean, I'm an ambassador for the Scouts and, and, um, and we're doing, if you don't mind me saying, um, over, over, over the course of this lockdown, we're doing um, forest skills lessons on YouTube. We're doing um, live, um, um, live lessons every 10 o'clock, 10 o'clock every weekday um, on the online bushcraft YouTube channel. And, um, and it's cool. just encourage people to get out and, and, and oh. spend more time outdoors really, yeah. What age yeah. kind of group is it aimed at? I think I've, we want it to be a, um, open to everybody. Um, there, there is an, invariably, there's not a lot of bushcraft you can do without a knife. And we do want to be cooking stuff over fires and stuff. So I think it's, it's open to everyone, but it's, it's the idea is that they're with their parents. I think that is probably the, 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 the best way to put it. And uh, um, it's hopefully, you know, it's not going to encourage children to burn their parents' houses down on their own. <laughs> that would be a disaster. Or cut their fingers off. That would also be a disaster. It's open for everyone. It's, it's, it's a sort of forest, you know, it's, in, in the same vein as forest schooling is, is, is hopefully increasing in popularity and it's been sort of bubbling around for about the last 15 years, hasn't it? But I think weirdly with this pandemic, it's been one of the positives with the, is this sort of national yearning to reconnect with the outdoors and, and learn more skills. And, and um, there's only so many dog walks you can go on, you know, and I think if you don't have any skills, you can just go on a walk and then you have to come home again. But I think it's, it's given people the ability to know that they, I don't know if they can just pack enough stuff to be comfortable for overnight or they can light fires or they can, you know, all sorts of, they can forage lots of different stuff. And I think, I think that's important because then you can be comfortable for longer outdoors and then you end up doing, spending more time outdoors. And, and that's when life starts getting better in my, in yeah. my Great. So it's like the right version of survival, not the one where you build a basement and fill it with baked beans and, and guns. We don't like that. Not the proper one. No, no. <laughs> that sounds brilliant. I mean, and it's also embracing the ideas of community. And like you're saying, bonding moments don't happen in front of the TV. You know, that's this is the it's the same for 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 me as a kid as well. Like weirdly, I remember having like one of the biggest memories for me as a kid is being in this little place in West Cork, down with our old uh, Toyota Corolla on the beach and having tuna sandwiches out of that whilst on the beach. It was a cold, you know, one of those like Irish summer's days. And all we did was like, it was super simple. And it wasn't, it wasn't because it was tasty food, but there was obviously something in that because I was tiny. I mean, like it's a memory from when I was, I'd say five or four, but there's obviously enough in that for like 30, whatever years later for that to have persisted as a really happy memory for that to be like a formative thing. And for people to be able to know that they're going to have something to reflect on because we're all looking at memories like yesterday I was I was looking for for photos to do an Instagram post and I kept flicking past these things that made me feel immense like like you know little holiday moments little walks food things that we'd shared and those are big deals and we're thinking about our kids now and what they're having to live through and you know there's a pervasive amount of fear around to be able to like inject like moments of really like good formative community-based like you know bonding and, and contact moments with, with their parents I think is so important so fair deuce that's a great great timing for this thing fair deuce yeah and I think also um it's about us <laughs> not feeling like the world has been um 
reduced to this tiny thing where like all the joy is being sucked out of it right it's like going yes okay like amazing to travel to the amazon and to live in nepal and all these things that we did that we were lucky enough to do but also that there's this whole world of joy right where we live and that we have access to it and just because certain things have been taken away actually it's given us the freedom and opportunity to look at what's right outside and go oh well actually the really really important moments they're not the things to do with getting on the planes and going out and going to clubs and pubs and all those things it's the things that we still have all this access to it's just rediscovering those moments of joy within our days that are free and i think i think sometimes that especially when it's cold and wet outside that the, the comfort actually gets in the way doesn't it you know the, the central heating is, is is the worst thing in the world because it, it makes you not want to go outside and and and, and let, literally when i took ran on that little wild camping thing everyone's are you nuts and i'm like Oh, we're gonna, he's not going to die. We're sleeping yeah. in, tent in really warm sleeping bags. You know, he's going to be fine. But, um, it's that concept that you would want to make yourself uncomfortable. And I think maybe that is why they're so memorable because because then that that makes you feel a little bit more alive, doesn't it? Because you can feel the elements. You can you, you can feel discomfort. And But that you're feeling something. When you're watching telly, you're you're not feeling anything, are you? You're completely zoned out unless it's the notebook or something and then you're tearing up. But um, it's... Um, <laughs> I don't know. I, yeah, I, th I think it's, it's it's the visceral experiences in life, and they don't have to be good. They can yeah. be they can potentially be arduous as well. And I think you know, if you're going through that, you're probably learning something as well. So that's another positive because you're becoming a better version of yourself because you're learning how to cope with adversity, which is obviously a, a positive as well. So yeah, no, I, I think it's um, yeah, little little doses of of, of not being comfortable is very helpful. Yeah. Absolutely, 100%. Listen, uh, this has been amazing, man. Really exciting. I'm so glad we had this chat. Mm. Thank you very much um, for having me on. It's been a real pleasure talking to you. Yeah. And we were so, so lucky that, that News S were able to connect us. And um, and we knew that it would already, like, we know you're our type of people <laughs> straight away. Oh, and thank you very like, much. <laughs> oh, man, like, I mean, it, it's, it's great to see somebody who's like role models uh, who are doing, you know, engaging in authentic kind of like human behavior and willing to explore and candidly explore their own internal world and, and give it to other people can only be useful right now. I think that's, that's it just takes down all the barriers, which is which is what's needed. So fair do. So I think you're doing a really good thing. So thank you. Thank you, mate. Appreciate it. Yeah, it's been lovely chatting. So yeah, yeah thank you for having me on. Brilliant. And uh, we shall um, just say, finish with saying thank you to our sponsors, to News S for connecting us, uh, our fantastic mm -hmm. nutritional partners who, who produce the most um, ethically grown, uh, sustainably packaged, packaged and recycled plastic, um, really, really high grade uh, vegan, organic, your own pea protein, um, and, and, and also all the other nutritionals that they do as well. Uh, and also then Clear Light Saunas, our infrared sauna partner, who uh, it's great to have an infrared sauna partner, by the way, Ed, you should definitely get yourself one. <laughs> <laughs> we'll, we'll help you <laughs> if you, don't, if you don't, you should, or if you haven't, you should. Uh, and also to Swivel, who are the people who uh, brought us this fantastic little robot that we get to record on. So uh, with that, we will say goodbye. And thank you very much for watching. And thanks very much, Ed. And uh, see you next time. Bye. Bye. Yes, bye bye, mate.